Welcome to this American Society of Hematology podcast for the hematologist Ash News and Reports. In this installment of our series, Drs. Adam Zucker, Holger Schunemann, Mary Cushman, and Paul Monigle will talk about new Ash guidelines on BTE. This ASH project to develop 10 evidence-based clinical practice guidelines on the diagnosis and treatment of venous thromboembolism was initiated in 2015 in collaboration with the McMaster University Great Center. A coordination panel and 10 expert guideline development panels were formed, composed of multi-professional experts in thrombosis, methodology experts, and patient representatives. Two of these 10 guidelines, Prevention of VTE in Non-Surgical Patients and VTE in Pediatric Populations, are now available for public comment. The deadline to comment is August 25, 2017. To access and comment on these guidelines, visit www.hematology.org guidelines public comment. Dr. Adam Sucker is Assistant Professor of Medicine in Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. He is Chair of the ASH VTE Guideline Coordination Panel and the ASH Guideline Panel on HIT. Dr. Holger Schunemann is Professor of Medicine and Chair of the Department of Health Research Methods, Evidence and Impact at McMaster University. He is Vice Chair of the ASH VTE Guideline Coordination Panel and the ASH Guideline Panel on Prevention of VTE in Non-Surgical Patients. Dr. Mary Cushman is Professor of Medicine at the Larner College of Medicine at the University of Vermont and Medical Director of the Thrombosis and Hemostasis Program at the University of Vermont Medical Center. She is Chair of the ASH Guideline Panel on Prevention of VTE in Medical Patients. Dr. Paul Monigle is Professor in Pediatrics at the University of Melbourne in Pediatrics Royal Children's Hospital. He is Chair of the ASH Guideline Panel on Pediatric VTE. None of our speakers has a direct financial conflict of interest with companies that market drugs or devices used to manage VTE. The other eight ASH guidelines on VTE will become available for comment online over the next four to six months. For more information on ASH guidelines and how you can get involved, visit www.hematology.org guidelines. Thank you for listening and enjoy the conversation. Hi, Adam. Hi, Holger. Nice to talk to you. It's um, very good to hear your voice and speak about the ASH VTE guidelines. Adam, the ASH VTE guidelines seem to be very special. ASH had not previously developed guidelines in a formal way or in particular in this way. What led to this initiative? Thanks, Holger. So initially, uh, ASH received uh, the results of membership surveys, which gave a very strong signal that the members were interested in clinical practice guidelines to assist in the the management of their patients. And ASH itself, of course, is is very interested in improving the quality of care for patients with blood disorders. And I think that these interests come in response to a really a growing importance of clinical practice guidelines in our society. We uh, recognize that guidelines inform policy. They inform what payers cover in terms of tests and treatments. They're increasingly used to develop quality metrics and to uh, determine how clinicians will be reimbursed in practice. And so really the practice of of clinical hematology, clinical practice guidelines, high-quality guidelines are, are fundamentally important to that practice. And so ASH responded to the needs of the membership in this landscape by really making a 
major commitment to clinical practice guidelines. So ASH is developing guidelines in a number of areas, but one of the major areas and the areas that you and I are both involved in are the venous thromboembolism guidelines. So as you know, we are part of a guideline coordination panel that was assembled in 2016. And one of the jobs of our panel was to determine the scope of these guidelines, identify panelists, and begin to develop methods for the guidelines. The project is now uh, well underway, and there are 10 different topics within the world of venous thromboembolism that are part of these guidelines. And I'll just list those for our listeners now and give people a sense of where they are in their development. So the two chapters that are farthest along are prevention of venous thromboembolism in non-surgical patients and pediatric thrombosis. And those panels have already developed recommendations, and those uh, recommendations are currently available for public comment through August 25th. So we want to encourage our listeners to review those recommendations and make comments, and perhaps we could talk more um, in the discussion later about, about the importance of public comment. The other chapters that are a little bit earlier on in the process are prevention of venous thromboembolism in surgical patients, treatment of venous thromboembolism, a chapter on optimal management of VTE, chapter on on heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, chapter on pregnancy, one on cancer-associated venous thromboembolism, and then chapters on thrombophilia and diagnosis of VTE. So we're very uh, excited about all of these topics. Collectively, they will include more than 200 questions, and they involve a large number of experts, more than 100 experts on VTE from around the world, um, as well as expert methodologists and patient representatives. So we're very excited about this effort. We see it as truly a comprehensive guideline on venous thromboembolism, a very common disease, and are very hopeful that it will be useful to ASH membership, to clinicians, and ultimately of course, improve outcomes for our patients. But one of the, I think, special things about these VTE guidelines is how much attention ASH has paid to making sure that the methodology is as rigorous as possible. And Hoger, as the vice chair and the leader of the methodology team, you've, you've really led the way in this, both within ASH the ASH guideline efforts, and you're also a leader in clinical practice guidelines internationally. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about clinical practice guideline methodology and perhaps some of the unique aspects of the methods that are being applied in the ASH guideline. Thanks, Adam. First of all, it's really good to hear that ASH is responding to the membership's request and is engaging in this field, which um, to many of us is obviously one of the most important means knowledge translation tools to bring evidence into practice. Clinical practice guideline development has really come a long way. Approximately 15 years or so ago, a number of groups, including the World Health Organization, started to look at um, how clinical practice guidelines could be developed in a more transparent and probably more evidence-based way. And um, that led to a number of initiatives around the world really to improve the methods and the transparency, as I just indicated, the transparency that leads to hopefully better guidelines. In the past, guidelines or recommendations within guidelines, so a guideline is typically made up of many different recommendations on a topic, have ended up with unclear recommendations that were often difficult to understand and implement. They often were not exactly responding to the needs of clinicians and other users of recommendations. And that really has changed a great deal. That also includes better understanding 
how recommendations and guidelines are developed. So even over the past few years, with professional societies and other developers developing recommendations that were based on evidence, so even if evidence was used, it um, often has remained unclear how the evidence was used and how, for instance, a guideline panel would arrive at a recommendation. Typically, a guideline panel is made up of a multidisciplinary group of clinical experts, of methodological experts. Those are people who typically review the evidence and try to understand the type of studies that were conducted and try to evaluate them, as well as some other experts and, for instance, patient representatives. So guideline panels would have arrived at recommendations without necessarily making clear what the underlying reasons for both the direction and the strength of a recommendation are. So the direction of a recommendation typically determines whether or not an intervention or a test should be used or should not be used. Many things that we do in healthcare probably require changes, should not be done. And the strength of the recommendation expresses how convinced the panel actually is that a certain intervention or a test leads to more what we call desirable consequences than undesirable consequences both on an individual as well as on a population level. So making these processes more transparent and understandable has been a at the forefront, I would say, of clinical practice guideline and development methodology. So we have done a lot of work with, as I said, organizations like the World Health Organization, many professional societies, as well as governmental and non-governmental organizations to ensure that we develop recommendations and guidelines that, as I said, are better implementable and make sense in simple words. And the ASH guidelines have, I would say, luckily have included or are including these methods that we believe will do a number of things. First of all, we'll make recommendations, bring recommendations closer to the clinician and the patient, and they will help with, once again, understanding why certain recommendations were formulated. And that means that with the why, that recommendations can be better individualized because every recommendation, when it comes to an individual patient-clinician type of decision, needs individualization. They also will help with adaptation to different contexts. And there are many, many contextual factors that can influence whether or not a certain therapy or a test should actually be used. So understanding these factors has been both, at I would say, a primary interest with regards to research in clinical practice guidelines, as well as a primary interest of guideline panels in order to, once again, arrive at recommendations that are useful for practice. So understanding, as I said, what influences a recommendation um, had in many previous guideline efforts become impossible because of this lack of transparency and the ASH VTE guidelines are, we believe, leading to better understanding and, and greater possibilities for clinicians actually to use them. And there are some other things that are increasingly important, and those are issues that relate to, for instance, making sure that experts and other panel members are able to interpret the evidence in a way that bias is avoided, that includes, once again, preparing evidence for them and rating how certain we can be in this evidence so that they express or are able to express uncertainty as well as also dealing with issues that, for instance, relate to potential conflicts that experts have. 
It is very human that if we have practiced in a certain way or if we really believe in certain interventions, that that often leads to an intellectual challenge when the evidence doesn't necessarily confirm what we have always believed. And we believe that these methods or these approaches that we're using are probably dealing with some of those potential conflicts in a way, once again, to make sure that evidence is interpreted in an unbiased way and can be appropriately, appropriately used for decision-making. And in relation to that, the approaches to identifying evidence and being systematic about this identification as well as um, evaluation of the evidence that includes extracting data from individual studies and assessing how confident we can be in this data. All of that is being done for these particular um, guidelines in a way that we think um, will really advance the field and will provide a track record that also lends itself to then updating in the future. Oftentimes, we need to bring together information from many, many studies. In other words, we need to pool data from many studies, which we call meta-analysis or a quantitative synthesis of data that appear similar enough to bring together. And we would have used methods that are up-to-date and consistent with international standards. In fact, some methods that we have actually led in the development to make sure that we can present this information to the guideline panels and they can interpret it appropriately. And as you mentioned, there are 10 guideline panels that have come together and we have conducted these systematic searches and used systematic ways of bringing the evidence together for over 200 questions. And a term that is frequently used in this context is the term systematic reviews. So we have done systematic reviews to inform these questions. And a systematic review basically collects and critically analyzes multiple research studies or pieces of evidence to answer a specific question. They are typically based on defined inclusion and exclusion criteria for studies. They provide a statistical or narrative summary. I mentioned a meta-analysis. They would assess the methodological quality or credibility of studies. We call that risk of bias oftentimes. And then assess overall how certain we can be in the evidence that is utilized to inform questions. So overall, I would say with all of that work that has been done that we have integrated in the ASH VTE guideline development efforts, we are expecting to see highly credible recommendations that can be utilized in different clinical contexts obviously addressing different topics and can be used in a way that will lead to the best decisions and possibly also adapted for scenarios that are not exactly the scenario that the guideline panel had in mind, but a user will find the evidence to make sure that the right decision is being made. So, Adam, this was a brief overview of the methods that we have used. There is much more to say about about all of that, but I'm just wondering, the public comment period is something that a few guideline developers have done in the past. Why do you think this is so useful for the ASH VTE guidelines? Well, thanks, Holger, and thank you for that thorough and succinct description of the methods. We appreciate all the thought and effort that you and your team have put into making these guidelines the best that they can possibly be. Another important part of the methods, as you suggest, is putting up these guidelines for public comment. And as I understand it, the purpose of public comment has several aims. First of all, of course, it may lead to the identification of errors. 
I think the panels try hard not to make mistakes, but mistakes are always possible in these documents. And so having additional sets of eyes can only help to identify errors before the guidelines are submitted for publication. It's also important for reviewers in the public comment to assess the recommendations for transparency and clarity. You pointed out when you discussed the methods and some of the limitations of previous guidelines that recommendations that lack clarity are not useful. And so we are placing a premium on clarity and we want to make sure that these recommendations are as clear and as user-friendly as possible. And so we ask those who review during the public comment period to pay special attention there. We're also interested in whether reviewers are able to identify opportunities for implementation because, of course, the guideline itself is just a document. It's worth nothing if it doesn't lead to changes in practice or implementation. And so we're very interested in what reviewers might have to say about opportunities for implementing these recommendations, especially if the recommendations represent a change in practice compared to the current standard of care. And I'll just remind our listeners that the pediatric thrombosis and the prevention of thrombosis in non-surgical patient guidelines are currently available for public comment until August 25, 2017. And you can access those guidelines by following the link that is provided with this podcast. It will take you to a dedicated webpage within the ASH website where you can provide your comment via a special survey instrument. And uh, rest assured that your comments will not be ignored. They will be read and carefully considered by the chairs and vice chairs and members of the respective panels. Holger, I, I want to ask you First, whether you have anything to add about the public comment period, and second, I just wondered if you could briefly comment on opportunities for implementation. I know we're asking the reviewers during the public comment to identify opportunities, but are there other opportunities that have already been identified that may be used in the implementation phase for these ASH guidelines? Yeah, thanks, Adam. So with regards to the public comment, I, I do think that the public comment period will once again help with usability of the guidelines as a guideline panel effort is a very careful effort, but this will help ensuring that we haven't missed anything important and that we actually, once again, also at the time of development are already thinking about implementation, what should be considered, how should we present certain evidence, how should we think about, once again, writing certain sections. All of that, we believe, we will gain from a public comment period. That's at least, to some degree, the experience of other guideline developers who have used that, although I must say that not many guideline developers are making such a important effort and concerted effort to obtain public comments. With regards to implementation, we have been extremely fortunate to collaborate and partner with ASH at McMaster University, where we are working with a large group of researchers and what we consider early innovators in the context of clinical practice guidelines, in particular with what is called the grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation, in short, GRADE Center at McMaster University. 
GRADE is an approach to, once again, increasing transparency in clinical practice guideline development, making clinical practice guidelines more credible. It's an approach that is used by over 100 organizations around the world that we have developed approximately 17, 18 years ago. And these organizations include the World Health Organization, the American College of Physicians, once again, um, many professional societies, as well as some governmental organizations such as the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence in the in the UK. So we utilize these this approach, the great approach, to once again ensure that evidence is considered in a way that we know whether or not to trust the evidence a great deal or use evidence that is the best available evidence, but perhaps where there are limitations and then express this potential uncertainty. Doing this lends itself to implementation. So over the past years, we've also thought very, very carefully about how recommendations can be translated into, for instance, patient decision aids. And we are engaging in an effort with the American Society of Hematology in developing patient decision aids as well as clinician decision aids that will help with making the best decisions. These would be decision aids that can be electronic in nature. They can lead to pamphlets and printouts. And we are particularly interested in ensuring that ASH members, the ASH membership at large, will make best use of these decision aids and therefore are working with ASH over the next few months to translate individual recommendations into these type of tools. This could include apps, it will include websites, and once again, hopefully, will lead to direct implementation of particular recommendations. There are other opportunities for implementation, obviously. We will disseminate guidelines on websites. We will have electronic links to, once again, the factors and criteria that were considered by a guideline panel in quite some detail, and this is part of the public comment period right now, so that a user can really understand any detail that they want to understand that supports a recommendation. And we will be disseminating the information, obviously, at scientific conferences that goes from local to big international conferences to make sure that those who want to know about these guidelines will know about these guidelines. Adam, there have been a great number of experts involved in this particular guideline, and I consider it a particular strength that we were able to work with so many clinical experts in the field. I wonder if you want to say anything about the experts involved, in particular the ASH members who are members of the panels and how they represent the individual disciplines. Certainly, Holger, yes. So this is truly a massive effort. And as I think I may have mentioned earlier, there are more than 100 content experts involved among the 10 panels. And the content expertise is not just hematologists. It includes laboratory medicine specialists and radiologists and cardiologists and vascular medicine specialists, all with special interests in venous thromboembolism. And members of your team, expert methodologists, are also, of course, key contributors to the panel. And I also want to, again, re repeat that each of the panels has one to two patient representatives. And I must say that this has been one of my favorite parts of this effort. I was a bit skeptical when we first started out about whether patient representatives would be able to contribute meaningfully to a discussion where there was inevitably going to be a lot of shop talk. But I clearly underestimated these patient representatives. I think they have brought incredible value to the panels that I have observed. 
far from being wallflowers, they have made key contributions to the discussion and to the recommendations and I think have served a very important role of reminding the panel sometimes when we get a little bit too far into the weeds about the importance of what we're talking about to patients themselves. And so I think that the teams have been really thoughtfully composed and I do believe that that will result in truly an excellent final product. So, Holger, are there any other comments that you'd like to make about this effort before we close off? Yeah, I will I will just say that once again I I believe that the very careful efforts that we have undertaken to really identify the key areas that should be addressed in these initial BTE guidelines that ASH is developing, that the approach that we've used probably has led to identifying once again the most important questions that most practitioners would want answers to either because there's uncertainty in clinical practice or because there's a lot of variation in care or because we are dealing with areas where new evidence might have been published or come to light. And I believe that the recommendations will really address these key areas in a way that has not been done previously in the field of venous thromboembolism. And that is a particular strength to these guidelines. So I'm really looking forward to seeing the guidelines completed, in particular considering that we have used new technology to develop them and see them used. Right. Thank you. I only want to say that it's been such a privilege to work on this important project, and I am very grateful to Ash for inviting me to be a part of it, and also to say what it's been a pleasure to work with you and the McMaster Grade Center. I've learned a great deal about clinical practice guideline methods during this process, and I am confident that the thoughtfulness and hard work that um, your team and all involved have put into this is, is, is going to pay off with what I think will be very trustworthy and usable guidelines. Thank you. It's been an equal privilege for, for me and, and our team that I cannot speak highly enough of. My name is Dr. Mary Cushman. I'm a hematologist at the University of Vermont, and I'm here with Dr. Paul Monagle. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, Mary. Um, yeah, I'm Paul Monagle. I'm a pediatric hematologist from Melbourne in Australia, and it's um, nice to be chatting today. We haven't had a good chance to chat since we were actually together at the ASH guidelines meeting back in April in Washington, and uh, I did get the chance then to sit in a little bit on your panel. Tell me about your guidelines and your panel. So the guideline panel that I'm working with is the panel on prevention of venous thrombosis in medical patients. And this is a really important topic, obviously, because we know that hospital-acquired venous thrombosis is really prevalent and accounts for a large portion of all venous thrombosis. And so what we're dealing with is the prevention in medical patients, so patients essentially not undergoing surgery. And one of the neat things that we did with this guideline as we were developing the questions that we wanted to address was expanded it a little bit beyond the hospital. So we tried to deal with certain types of ambulatory patients who also are at risk of thrombosis. And that might include travelers or people in nursing homes or the frail elderly, that sort of thing. So we tried to tackle some new topics that really hadn't been addressed before. 
Yes, and I, I think that's why your panel's got so much in common with the paediatric panel, because almost all of paediatric clots, of course, you know, occur in children who have got underlying illnesses, medical or surgery. We see very few spontaneous clots in children. And in fact, recent data out of the States is showing that behind central line infections, hospital-acquired thrombosis is now the second most common hospital-acquired complication in paediatrics. So, so yeah, so I think our panel's had a little bit in, in common in thinking about how to prevent or manage risk in hospitalized patients. Yeah, I wondered about that with your panel. I, I wasn't fortunate enough to sit in on your panel discussions, but with thrombosis in children, there aren't a lot of clinical trials, and even the published evidence is relatively small. I wondered how you dealt with that challenge. Well, I think that's something that those of us who have worked in paediatric thrombosis for a while have been used to because there have been very few trials and, in fact, over the last 15 years, very very few of the trials that have actually been done have come to completion or had adequate numbers and, and that just reflects the complexity of the patient population. You know, when you think about children going from premature neonates to 18-year-olds, you think about all of the underlying illnesses, oncology, cardiac surgery, other surgery that they have. It's a very heterogeneous and difficult population to actually do, you know, good randomised trials in. But I guess in many ways, the low evidence makes the guidelines even more important. And what we found in other guidelines that I've been involved in is the paediatric community really needs and values a good set of guidelines because what to do isn't obvious. There aren't published papers where they can just pick up and read an RCT and know what to do. So it really is about putting together um, extrapolated evidence from the adult data, the observational data from the children's data, and then you know some expert opinion that will put some context on those things. And so in many ways, I think the guidelines are even more useful in these low evidence states. And I'm really glad that ASH have put so much time and effort into the rigour around these guidelines so that they can be most useful to the clinicians. Yeah, we had some similar situations where, for example, we wanted to consider the use of VTE prophylaxis in patients with uh, minor injuries, you know, like fractures treated as an outpatient or so forth. And there really is no data on clinical interventions to prevent thrombosis in those sorts of settings. So we had to extrapolate data from other settings where we felt that the baseline risk of thrombosis was similar and look at trials of other populations where the baseline risk was similar. So it represented a challenge and it was really interesting methodologically to approach that. Yeah, and I think that's right, Mary. And I think the, you know, as I say, we, we, we really focus on making evidence-based guidelines and we just need to remember that that requires looking at all of the evidence. And of course, it's great when we've got meta-analysis or randomised controlled trials. But when we don't, there is still evidence. It's just a question of how strong that evidence is. And then that's reflected in having a good methodological process and also a way of grading the recommendations that let the clinician understand the strength of the evidence that those recommendations have been based on. So that, you know, there are some recommendations, obviously, that are really strong recommendations that are applicable to all patients, almost no matter what the circumstances. And there are many other recommendations where it's a starting point and the clinician will need to take into account the individual factors of the patient. Now, obviously, in paediatrics, we're very much down that end of the spectrum, but nonetheless, the starting point for clinician is a really important starting point. Yeah, I agree. I I think that hopefully we're going to provide answers 
that will allow clinicians who may not be experts to interpret what we're saying and make it useful for their patients. And, you know, one of the challenges when you think about hospitalized patients, medical patients, not every hospital has hematology expertise that is in the area of thrombosis or thrombosis prevention. In fact, I got a phone call yesterday from an internist colleague of mine at a small hospital to ask my advice about protocols that they should implement about prevention. And so in a lot of settings, there isn't the expertise of of hematologists or others with the knowledge base to assist in that regard. So I'm really hoping that people who aren't experts in the field will find the guideline on prevention in medical patients to be useful. Yeah, and, and you, you know, there are many hospitalised patients and, as you say, many small hospitals and, depending on your jurisdiction, many private hospitals where the staffing levels will really vary. And as you said, you, you're now looking at patients in nursing homes and travellers, so there's a real breadth to your guidelines there, aren't there? Mary, and I would think it's the same in paediatrics, or probably even more of a challenge in terms of the numbers of, even amongst paediatric hematologists, the expertise in thrombosis is probably widely variable across centres. Yeah, there will be many paediatric centres that don't have a paediatric hematologist and certainly not one who might be experienced in thrombosis. So again, I think that's why these guidelines are are so important. And I, I think one of the other things that I really liked about our guideline panel was we had a breadth of people on it. And I think you did as well, lots of people from different disciplines. So you made sure that you were covering, you know, all of the perspectives as we thought about these guidelines. What kind of people did you have on your panel? Oh, it was really amazing. We definitely built a panel uh, that was diverse, and we had hematologists, of course, and internal medicine practitioners and researchers. Uh, We had a couple of oncologists, a methodologist, of course. We had a pharmacist and a cardiologist, and we actually had a patient. And the inclusion of a patient in particular was extremely helpful to us. This was a person who had been affected by venous thrombosis. And it was so amazing to have that input. As we were discussing different options, to have the patient perspective represented, we just found it extremely helpful. And I think this is a growing methodologic trend in guideline development that I think is really important and you know somewhat transformative. So that was really very helpful. Did you have parents on your panel or... Yeah, we did. We had we had two parents involved in our panel of, of different age children and again their input was invaluable and, and like you we had a, a mixture. We had, you know, thromboembolic doctors and we were also very lucky to have people geographically spread out. We had North America, South America, Europe, Australasia. Uh, we had a breadth of people from all around the world, which I think was really helpful because again there's often practices that grow up in different countries. We had intensivists, cardiologists, pharmacists, hematologists oncologists and then we had anticoagulation nurse and and then I say we had our parents and you know I I was lucky enough to observe three or four of the panels at the earlier meeting as well and everyone I saw that the parent contribution to the thinking at the panels and really just making the doctors on the panel focus on what these guidelines would mean and how important it was for parents to actually see transparency in the way we came to our guidelines I think was really useful and again I can only congratulate Ash on having the foresight to make that compulsory for all the panels because I think it really does lift the standard of what we do.
Yeah, I agree. We also had representatives from different countries, including resource-poor country, and and that was also helpful just in discussing the potential impact related to costs and barriers to receiving different preventive interventions. So having that perspective to guide us was really helpful as we considered the different options for treatments. Yes, and and those barriers really do change in different countries, don't they? Even amongst the pretty, you know, resource-rich countries. So having that perspective really makes these guidelines useful at an international level, rather than you know just for one country, which I think is fantastic, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I wondered if you could discuss the importance of having the public comments and input on your chapter. How much are you looking forward to seeing what kind of comments are obtained through the public review process? Because we've kind of moved into the stage where we've finalized the panel's recommendations for all the various questions for each of our papers, and now both of our papers are up on the ASH website for public comment. That's at hematology.org slash quality. And I wondered what your thoughts are about this stage of the process. Well, again, I think it's a really innovative thing to do and an important thing to do because there's no point writing guidelines that people are going to raise raise major objections to and, and then you're going to have problems implementing them. So I think this, this concept of getting some public comment back to actually make sure that the panel has truly represented um, an appropriate view of the, of the literature and the evidence um, and that they... Um, have written the guidelines in a way that are easily readable and digestible for clinical folk, um, I think is a really important thing to do. So I'm hoping that the uh, feedback will, of course, be positive, but, you know, it'll be if we get negative feedback, then it's great to have the opportunity to change what we do before we finally publish things. Do you have similar thoughts? Oh, absolutely. I'm, you know, really looking forward to seeing what the community says and really will value the input. And I hope we get input that's multidisciplinary, both from scientists and practitioners from different fields as well. Because while we had a diverse group and we think we, at each step, were extremely careful from the step of just generating the questions we were going to address down to the final recommendations and synthesizing the data, I hope that we obviously didn't miss any important information and that we interpreted things, you know, correctly. But I think that it's always good to have this vetted as fully as possible. So I'm really looking forward to that conference call we're going to have once we have all the public input. So it'll be really interesting to see what people think. Yeah, yeah. I think it's unlikely that you will have missed a a lot of information because I I think the methodology for these guidelines, I think, was was probably some of the best methodology I've seen around guidelines. You know, the the literature reviewing was extensive and then the putting together of the evidence tables and then the evidence to decision frameworks uh, following the grade methodology was really done well by the methodologists who were on the panel and I think that was really useful. But it will be interesting. I think one of the big things we'll be interested to get feedback from the public is the scope. You know, one of the challenges for us in paediatrics was, you know, there, there are, of course, going to be 10 ASH guideline chapters come out and nine of them are, of course, on adult populations. So, you know, we're, we're trying to cover the entirety of paediatrics in one set of guidelines and, and we had to make some big decisions about what 
what we would focus on and in the end we, we focused on recommendations for treatment and we haven't had the scope to cover you know issues around optimal management or diagnosis that are being covered in some of the other adult guideline chapters. So, so it may well be people giving us feedback that they want more and then hopefully ASH will take that feedback on board and we can produce further sets of paediatric guidelines down the track to give people the full set so that they've got real broad guidance about how to diagnose, manage and follow up their children with thrombosis. Well, that's a great point. I think that you can only do so much, right? And there's just as many questions in pediatrics as there are across the range of adults. My chapter, prevention, you know, obviously we didn't deal with pediatric populations, but there's a whole other topic of what's the best way to prevent thrombosis in children who are hospitalized. Yes, and we didn't deal with prevention at all. As I say, we really just focused on treatment of established thrombosis. But as I say, you can only do so much in, in each chapter. One of the key things that I thought for you in, in your chapter was, was establishing what the baseline risk was. What did you think about that? Yeah, so for each question, each subpopulation we were considering, whether it be general medical patients or ICU patients or people in nursing homes or travelers, we had to systematically review the available evidence. And we used both data from observational studies, epidemiologic studies, from placebo groups of randomized controlled trials, and did the best we could to establish the baseline risk from that. And in some cases, we extrapolated from populations that we felt were similar when we didn't find data. Um, One of the most challenging pieces about this is the definition of a high-risk medical inpatient. There are a number of different risk assessment tools that clinicians and hospitals use to establish the risk upon admission, for example, so that you can decide what type of prophylaxis will be provided. And those risk assessment tools are validated to varying degrees. And the inclusion of people in randomized controlled trials, the inclusion criteria, differs across the trials. And so it's a little bit challenging. We actually have a subset of our writing group right now working on assembling the available risk assessment tools, information on those tools, so that we can provide that with the paper. That's not in our posted information that we're asking for comment on at this point because it's it's a work in progress. But we're hoping along with our paper we can post a cogent discussion of the available risk assessment tools and how those could be applied to using our guideline. Yes, fantastic. Yeah, because I think, you know, as you say, some of these things have just been taken for granted in the past. And really, again, when you actually put some methodological rigor on the way we've been looking at things, there's lots more work to be done, isn't there? Absolutely. You know, we had some situations where the quality of evidence was pretty low, yet the clinical interest is very high. And I wonder if you had examples of questions you addressed that were like that. Yeah, I think that's pretty much all of our guidelines, (laughs) where where I think the clinical interest is high. um, Because, you know, as I said before, almost all clots that occur in children occur in children that have got an underlying, you know, major illness. And, of course, the reason we're seeing so many more clots now in children is because they're surviving those primary illnesses. So it's pretty devastating when you have a child who has got a major cardiac defect or who develops a malignancy and they get cured from that illness and then they get a long-term complication from a secondary thrombosis. 
So, so, so I think there's lots of clinical interest and there's lots of interest from our patients and families as well. And yet, as I say, for almost all of those, pretty low evidence. This time around, in these guidelines, I think we really then tried to do, do things that would be useful for the clinicians. So we started to separate out you know, how one might approach symptomatic thrombosis versus asymptomatic thrombosis, which hasn't really been addressed before. The use of antithrombin in children has been very topical over recent years. And so we've made some comments about that based on the evidence. Uh, we've looked at the timing of, of whether or not you should leave the central lines in in children who've got central line associated clots and if you are going to remove them, what's the right time to do that. And we've, we've also looked at some issues around duration of treatment. So, so we really tried to address a lot of the questions that clinicians have been feeding back to us that they've been really interested in and that obviously been very important in the literature over recent years, but for which there's still a lot of lack of certainty about how to do it. So I'm comfortable that these guidelines have really put together the best evidence that is available and give us a starting point to be thinking about lots of those really important issues. What about your set of guidelines, Mary? Do you think that there's things that people are going to find new or controversial or what were your well, thoughts? One of the questions we addressed, which required quite a lot of time for discussion, was the the issue around prevention of thrombosis in long-distance travelers. Mm -hmm. um, this is a very hot topic of extremely high public interest. You know, travelers' thrombosis is something that is a topic that lends itself really well to educating the public about venous thrombosis, yet it's an entity that is not exceedingly common. You know, the, the risk of thrombosis associated with travel is magnitudes lower than the risk associated with things like hospital stay or, you know, intensive care stays. But, of course, you have millions of travelers every year and every month. And so it's a topic that's of great public interest. And so we spent a lot of time trying to synthesize the data because this is a setting where the data resource available to us is really quite small. And the quality of the research, you can imagine doing clinical trials and travelers is really difficult logistically. And so we spent a lot of time talking about it. And I think we came up with a pretty cogent set of recommendations as best we could based on the data that we have and around the use of either compression stockings, low molecular weight heparin or aspirin in travelers. And I think if the interested listener wants to see more about that, they should go and look at the posted recommendations that are available for public comment now, we ended up really sort of addressing the question via breaking it down into subgroups where we essentially didn't recommend any special intervention in people who don't have known risk factors for VTE, but in people who have risk factors like recent surgery or prior thrombosis or active cancer, we gave some guidance on the use of compression stockings, low molecular heparin or aspirin in those groups and tried to prioritize it. So we spent a quite amount of quite a bit of time on that topic and we used the epidemiologic data to try to get at the baseline risk. And you know, essentially DVT complicates only about one in forty six hundred trips and pulmonary embolus something around four point eight per million uh, flights. So, you know, it's not a real common event, but for those at risk, it is more common, and there's some good epidemiologic data on that. So we tried to use the epidemiologic data along with the available trials, which all have methodologic issues, to kind of come up with something that we thought was practical and cogent. And also, we then considered the cost as well and discussed that a bit. So it was an interesting discussion and did take a fair amount. Yeah, 
yeah, I was I was sitting in the back of your room for that discussion, and it was an interesting discussion. But again, I think you know the best methodological approach to the evidence that was available, and I thought again that was that was one where the patient perspective I think was really important because what it drove home for us is it's the question that every one of our patients asks us, whether it's on our mind or not. Exactly. Um, and exactly. And uh, and again, with the the millions of people in the air every day, you know those those low baseline risks actually translate into numbers that are that are important. And I, um, it's interesting that you mentioned the cost consideration there because that that actually was something that came into the discussion for every one of the recommendations, didn't it? You know, first up, we looked at what the evidence was and and made recommendations based on the evidence. But then there was a cost consideration and a discussion about whether or not cost was likely to be a barrier in different jurisdictions. So again, I think it shows the completeness of the, of the guidelines and the usefulness that that has for people. Yeah, I really enjoyed those conversations about about cost and, and as you said, about equity and how the things that we are recommending might be impacted by resource limitations in different parts of the world and how the things we were recommending would impact equitable care delivery. And those are questions where there is very little data and we need more research. And I think in general, the provision of and the discussions we had also taking off on that on research priorities. So for each question, we discussed what the priorities might be for future research so that the next guideline on this topic can be better and I really enjoyed that. I agree. So yeah, look, all in all, I think the guidelines were a fantastic process and, and well done. And, and again, this, this opportunity for public comment for people who want to go to the ASH website, as you say, and, and give a comment um, is a really important part of this process. And I've really enjoyed being involved in these guidelines up to now. And I'm really looking forward now to utilising that input and then uh, working towards an end product that we hope we'll have out you know, before the end of this year. Yeah, and I've really enjoyed talking to you about your perspectives and your chapter, and I think I'm going to go to the website right now and check out the results of your guideline at hematology.org slash quality. And I hope you'll look at mine, too, and give us some input. Uh, I've been looking at all 10 and because uh, they're always interesting reading. And, and I think especially when you're at that guideline meeting and you saw all of those people who were there, uh, who were focused and uh, really worked hard for a prolonged period of time, both before the meeting and then during the meeting, you recognise the effort that goes into these guidelines and I think they're certainly well worth a read. So, yeah, looking forward to all of the feedback. It's been good chatting again today, Mary, and I'm looking forward to seeing you at the next meeting. I do as well. Thanks so much for chatting. Thanks. Remember to send in your comments by August 25th, 2017. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Hematology. For more information, visit www.hematology.org. Make sure to add this podcast to your favorite RSS feed and follow us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Join us in September for another podcast from hematologist Ash News and Reports.